Hello, and welcome to your next episode of Fixing Fitness with Kelly, the show that serves up real talk about fitness with a focus on why traditional fitspo just doesn't serve women in their 30s. Let's talk about what we can really do to get results that make all the effort worth it. Get more on the website at kellymarieroach.com, including exclusive access to my head-to-toe mobility routine when you download my free guide to the five worst exercise cues in the fitness industry. And tune into the Kelly M. Roach YouTube channel for weekly videos offering fresh perspectives on fixing fitness topics. Hey, everybody, we are about to record season one, episode four of the Fixing Fitness with Kelly podcast, which may be seeing a rebrand in the near future. Stay tuned for that if that comes to pass. And to introduce today's episode, I just wanted to say this one is coming from the fact that I'm seeing more and more accounts on Instagram that are making really declarative statements. Um, And whenever something is an all or nothing kind of statement or um, there's a lot of exclusion in what they're saying, like you have to do this to the exclusion of all else for the sake of your health, yada, yada, yada. I always kind of take a second to assess. I try to look into the account owner um, because even if it's something that seems like, yeah, like I could see how that would work, um, it, it always gives me pause. Do you guys remember having to fill out like those scantrons on multiple choice tests, right? And they always said, avoid the answers on a multiple choice test that say words like all or none or only. And I feel like, That is true whenever I read something or come across something on the internet that even if it sounds like it could be, like there could be something there, um, if it's conveyed in that way, I always have to take a second. So today, as I'm sure you saw with the title, we're talking about whether or not fitness at this point in time with all of the content on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, wherever, is fitness being oversimplified or overcomplicated. So let's jump into today's episode and see where I landed. I recently came across the Instagram account Dr. James Denick. The owner is a doctor of pharmacy and a cardiovascular scientific researcher at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. And his posts caught my attention because of how much they simplify health, nutrition, and fitness with an authoritative voice that doesn't invite debate. Here are two of his posts that keep popping up on my feed. The first says, quote, the best way to lose body fat and build muscle at the same time. Lift heavy three to four times per week, 60 minutes of walking a day, have 150 to 200 grams of protein per day, some form of cardio three times per week. Do this for 90 days. Fat will melt. And another one quotes, if you eat less, you'll lose weight. If you eat less and eat plenty of protein, you'll lose body fat. If you eat less, eat plenty of protein and strength train, you'll lose body fat and gain muscle. Congrats, now you have the secret to fat loss and muscle gain. Drawing upon all the years of reading I've done on these topics, I balked at the 150 to 200 grams of protein as a universal recommendation and the assertion that you can gain muscle while in a caloric deficit. 
There is actually lots of debate about ideal protein intake for muscle building, and common wisdom is that you need to be in a slight caloric surplus to increase your muscle mass. But at the same time, Dr. James's simplified message seems to hit upon the basics in an easily digestible way. Eat a little less, consume more protein, get moving more often, perform resistance training. And it got me wondering, do we really need to get into all the nitty gritty of the science to see results? Or are we overcomplicating things when really this simplified version of the science could get the job done? Over the years, I've watched the tide turn on muscle building nutrition advice numerous times. First, it was that men and women have different needs when it comes to building muscle. Then it was that no, in fact, they don't, and muscle building protocols are more or less universal. Then came the concept of bio-individuality, meaning that there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all approach to nutrition. Some people will thrive on a plant-based diet, while some do really well on low-carb plans, and others see weight drop off when they cut back on fats. There was the if-it-fits-your-macros era, which basically gave you permission to eat absolutely whatever you wanted as long as your daily macronutrient numbers were met, followed by its opposite, which took a whole foods-only approach to nutrition. The backlash against all of the disordered eating caused by obsessive nutrition tracking was, of course, the intuitive eating trend, which rose in popularity as a generation of bikini competitors turned into that-girl influencers. Perhaps the most difficult part of all of this was that people following wildly different advice all seemed to be getting incredible results. So who was right and who was wrong? One relevant article I found published back in 2009 differentiated between protein needs and optimal protein intake for athletes, noting that the recommended daily allowance of 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight is the minimum amount required to maintain short-term nitrogen balance. But when the goal is to pack on muscle, there are other things to look at, like protein source and timing of intake. Specifically, the article found that protein-rich meals containing at least 3 grams of leucine in particular, which is a branched-chain amino acid, per kilogram of body weight, maximized muscle protein synthesis. This conclusion seems to be supported by a 2014 article in the Journal of Nutrition that found muscle protein synthesis was sustained in subjects for a 24-hour period when their protein intake was distributed evenly across meals versus the subjects whose protein intake was skewed to consume the highest amount at the evening meal. The good news is that there are lots of food sources of essential amino acids and branched-chain amino acids like leucine. WebMD lists salmon, chickpeas, brown rice, eggs, soybeans, nuts, and beef as seven major ones. The bad news, on the other hand, is that there isn't an easy way to determine how much leucine is in the foods you eat. You can Google a few sources and cross-reference them until you find some consistency, but it's my personal opinion that this behavior is a recipe for forming disordered eating habits. There are dozens of supplements on the market that you can turn to as well. You can take supplements just to get your essential amino acids in. You can narrow it down specifically to supplement your BCAAs. And yes, there are even supplements just for leucine. This can get complicated quickly. Which of these do you need to take? If memory serves, when I did my own bikini competition, my coach had me supplementing with at least two of the three, 
But if you're taking a BCAA, do you also need to take leucine on its own? How much does the rest of your diet impact what you need to supplement? And we haven't even touched yet on the fact that none of these supplements is FDA regulated. So you're putting a lot of faith in the manufacturer to be honest and transparent about what's on their label. All of this is to demonstrate the polar opposite of Dr. James's direct, generalized approach. In contrast to his proclamation that all you need to do is eat less, eat a lot of protein, and strength train, this tiny sample of the available research that's out there would look more like focus on optimal protein, not necessary protein. Consume leucine in proportion to your body weight. Do so every four to six hours, but not to the neglect of other sources of protein. Also, time your workouts around food consumption to support muscle protein synthesis. So is this where Dr. James ultimately said, screw it, if you're eating 150 to 200 grams of protein a day from food sources, you're probably landing somewhere in the ballpark of optimal consumption of EAAs and BCAAs? Maybe this kind of oversimplification is necessary because, as we just saw, it can get overcomplicated very quickly. And I would be interested to know, in a side-by-side -side comparison, if the simplified approach is just as effective as the complicated one when it comes to burning fat and building muscle. If we decide to take a simplified approach to protein consumption for muscle building and fat loss, the next level of complication is the debate about whether you can achieve muscle growth without consuming animal proteins. Plant protein sources are incomplete in the sense that any one plant-based source of protein will not have a complete amino acid profile. However, a wide and varied vegetarian diet can absolutely cover all 20 amino acids, including the nine essentials. However, it's also important to note that from a strictly nutritional aspect, Consumption of animal proteins has been somewhat vilified by the correlation between meat consumption and development of lifestyle diseases. But note here that correlation does not mean causation. Likewise, meat-heavy diets are also associated with high saturated fat intake and low dietary fiber intake. But it's absolutely possible to consume a high amount of dietary fiber via fruits and vegetables, even if animal proteins are your primary protein source. So it seems to me at a high level, like these opposing viewpoints have developed out of the faulty logic that the two are mutually exclusive. If you eat meat, it must be to the exclusion of fiber-rich fruits and vegetables. And if you eat a plant-based diet, it must mean that you're consuming an incomplete profile of amino acids when neither of those things apparently has to be true. And I think it's important to note that neither offers a complete picture either. We're not including in this the fierce debate over whether and how packaged or processed foods contribute to the overall picture of health and development of lifestyle diseases. We haven't introduced the topic of sugar consumption or the balance of other macronutrients, fats and carbohydrates, that contribute to a complete nutrition profile either. Is it possible that meat eaters in these studies have also been prone to eating more high-fat foods in general, or that those on a plant-based diet supplement their calorie intake with more processed foods that have their own unidentified impact? All of the advice on the internet about the optimal way to go about doing anything when it comes to fitness has to be checked for completeness, and this, I think, is the balance between oversimplification and overcomplication. 
The danger of a simplified solution is always the question of what essential information it's excluding to remain so simplified. But it's also necessary not to include so much information that the solution becomes so overwhelmingly detailed that it triggers analysis paralysis and ceases to be helpful. So as you come across the real experts on social media, it's important to ask yourself who they're talking to and remember that you might not be their target audience. Just because there's good advice out there about something, it doesn't mean it's good advice for you. I think the other thing to take into consideration is, as always, what are you trying to accomplish? If your goals are more specific and nuanced than general, you probably need more information to arrive at a solution that supports you. For example, do you just want to make sure you're getting the minimum daily recommended amount of protein for basic bodily functions? Or are you part of the group seeking that optimal intake for athletic reasons? A professional bodybuilder will find it more important to eke out every last bit of muscle protein synthesis that she can and is probably willing to time her food intake and supplement accordingly. But if you have a more general goal of just building some muscle and making sure you're getting enough protein to get you there without having to think too much more about it, there's nothing wrong with that approach either. It just may take a little more trial and error to determine what's optimal for your unique needs. Every time I come across new information, I'm tempted to implement it into what I'm already doing. And there isn't necessarily anything wrong with this, but it has to be done in a way that you can actually measure the outcome of changing something. I recently purchased a handful of new skincare items to try, and instead of following my own advice, I started using three new items on my face on the same day. Three days later, I was breaking out and had no way of knowing which item was causing the problem. The same principle applies here. If you start three new supplements at the same time and start noticing a change, you're not going to be able to tell which supplement is supporting you. Could it be just one, a combination of all three? If it's just one of them doing the bulk of the work, then you could save yourself a lot of money by not buying the other two. And as we mentioned before, since most of those things aren't regulated, there are lots of unstudied side effects that could occur as well. It's best to be able to identify exactly where they're coming from if you experience anything like that. So to turn us back to where this episode began with the question of whether fitness and muscle building have become too oversimplified or too overcomplicated, I think it's refreshing to see knowledgeable people lay off the gatekeeping that has made understanding the why and how behind physical fitness inaccessible for so long. They say that the sign of a true expert is the ability to distill complex concepts into something that is easily explained. So while you still need to be able to fact check your experts and question their assertions if they don't seem quite right to you, I think the move away from overcomplicating fitness is a positive step that's going to help a lot more people grow their understanding of their own bodies and be able to reach their goals. So this episode was an interesting one to write because, as I said at the beginning, the initial question that I started to investigate was whether we're sort of oversimplifying or overcomplicating physical fitness and how we go about being optimally fit for our unique bodies. And this kind of quickly took a turn into muscle protein synthesis and muscle building in particular 
and the absolutely fierce debate over protein intake in particular. And so the studies that I found to support some of this and then, you know, Dr. James's account, which I mentioned on Instagram, kind of bouncing back and forth between how detailed do you need to get and how simplified can you make things and still have it be effective. That is the balance that we all need to find for ourselves. But I do like the idea that for those of us who are desk workers, doing our best to have fit, strong, healthy bodies, simplifying things could probably help us out a lot. It saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of cognitive load, which I talked a lot about in season one and how draining that can be. So I would be curious to know your opinions on this, the kinds of things that you're seeing on the internet that speak to this, that have caught your eye, that have made you go, can it really be that simple without being total BS, right? So come and find me on Instagram, kellym.roach, and comment in the posts that you see for this episode and let me know what you think. So that's all I've got for season two, episode four. Thank you again so much for listening and I'll be back with another episode next week. Bye-bye.